Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mr. Chief Justice, please the court. That's one of the hardest things that a person can go through. Not like somebody calls and says, well, your father just passed away. But you know how, you know what time, what day, you know everything. It's a sickening feeling. It was torture. It was for us. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Last time on Life of the Law, we presented Unequal Protection, Part 1, the story of Warren McCleskey's appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court that his sentence of death had been prejudiced by the color of skin. He pled with the court to uphold his right to equal protection under the law. Now we present Part 2, Sarah Marshall's report on Warren McCleskey's life after the Supreme Court ruling and his execution by the state of Georgia. Unequal Protection, Part 2. Her home in Marietta, Georgia, just a few miles away from the house where her father was arrested, Carla McCleskey pages through a scrapbook she made in the days after her father's death. In it is a pressed flower from Warren McCleskey's funeral, newspaper clippings about the case, pictures of Carla as a baby with her mother and father, and the program from her father's memorial service, where the choir sang Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. I have a grandson that looks just like him, spitting image. We have a bond, and I think it's mostly because he reminds me so much of my father. Warren McCluskey was executed on September 25, 1991. That day marked the end of the legal battle that began with Warren McCluskey's trial for murder and armed robbery in 1978 and included two appeals that both made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But that day was the beginning of another story for the people he left behind. That's one of the hardest things that a person can go through. Not like somebody calls and says, well, your father just passed away. But you know how, you know what time, what day, you know everything. It's a sickening feeling. It was torture. It was for us. 
But the pain that Carla and her family experienced went far beyond the days and weeks leading up to Warren's execution. It extended through the nearly 13 years that Warren McCluskey's family had spent visiting him on George's death row. I never knew how to tell anybody how it was affecting me. And then one time I just decided to tell my mom, I said, Mom, I said, every time I go see him, the way that they have it set up, once you get through those bars and you go and you visit, you're in, because you're on death row, you're in confined from everybody else. And we sit there, we talk, we laugh, but when it's time to go, they have to sit there and watch you leave. And I always wanted to take him with me. I mean, it was just like, why can't you come with me? Warren McCluskey was executed on September 25, 1991, four years after the Supreme Court affirmed his conviction and sentence, the first time. A second appeal, McCluskey v. Zant, arguing that the state had violated Warren's Sixth Amendment right to counsel and had withheld evidence from the defense, had also reached the Supreme Court earlier that year. The second appeal was based on one of two testimonies presented at Warren McCluskey's murder trial in 1978. You may remember Warren McCluskey participated in a robbery at which a white police officer responding to a silent alarm was shot and killed. One of the men who testified that he had witnessed McCluskey shoot the officer was Ben Wright, the man who planned and participated in the robbery. The second key witness who presented evidence against McCluskey was a police informant named Offy Evans. McCluskey's second appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, McCluskey v. Zant, was based primarily on the prosecution's means of securing Evans' testimony against McCluskey, and then keeping it out of the defense's hands. According to McCluskey's appellate lawyer, John Boger, Evans' testimony was suspect from the start person who testified against McCleskey at trial and con said McCleskey confessed to me and said he would have done it, turned out to be a police informant who was nowhere near McCleskey in the jail and who was moved by the investigating police officer from another floor in the jail to be right next to McCleskey and shortly after he was moved came out and said miraculously McCleskey has given me this confession. And there was a 20-page document in which he went word for word through what McCluskey ostensibly had said, as if he were a person who had, you know, photographic memory. Here's, not literally, he told me this, but right. here were McCluskey's words. That was all hidden from us, the fact that this person had been moved in the jail and had basically ostensibly talked McCluskey into a confession. That's a, against the Sixth Amendment. And the, the judge knows that and knew that, and it was hidden from us by the prosecutor. And when that came out, the, the judge said, I'm an old prosecutor, that was unfair to Ms. McCleskey, relief granted on that ground. We're going back to another trial. We went back to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they say, you should have found that earlier. And we said, we asked the state whether there was any evidence of this, and they denied it. They knew there was evidence. They hid the evidence from us. And now you, the court, are telling us that 
our failure to find the evidence that they deliberately hid from us prevents us from being heard on the merits of this clear constitutional violation. Boger calls Afi Evans a police informant. But Reverend Billy Moore, who was close friends with Warren McCluskey while both men were on death row, has another word for Afi Evans, snitch. In Fulton County Jail, the chief jailer, the prosecutor, and uh, a snitch was given, they gave this inmate information, letting them see, letting him see the police report about the furniture store robbery. And they told him to tell McCluskey that he was a part of it, and, but he got left, and he was with this guy named Ben Wright. And so they put him in McCluskey's cell to get information, but Warren did not talk to him because he knew that this guy was a snitch. So the state made up a 21-page statement stating that this inmate was told by McCluskey that he killed the police officer, and he would have killed more police officers. Now, during the trial, they told the court that there was not any written statement. It was just a live testimony. They didn't allow the jury to, find, to hear that this man was a child molester, that he had molested children three different times, and every time he would get locked up, he would testify in a high-profile case, and then they would let him go. So they didn't tell the jury that. And the prosecutor took the 21-page statement that they made, and he took it out of his county files and he hid it in the city record. So in 1980 when McCluskey was convicted and his attorney Robert Stroop had asked the judge for a copy of the statement, the judge looked at the record and said there is no statement and the prosecution said well yeah there's no statement Uh, this guy is just testifying in open court. And so every place that McCluskey's case went his attorney filed a motion asking for this statement. So now you got the Attorney General of Georgia saying he looked at the record and there is no statement. You have the Justice of the Supreme Court of Georgia saying that he looked in the record and there is no statement. And so McCluskey's case was being denied all the way through. And then in 1980 in Georgia, there was this child murders where this young man named Wayne Williams was convicted for supposedly killing all these children. The, the mothers of these children petitioned the court so they can get the records open so they can see exactly what investigation the police did. At that time, McCluskey's lawyer, one of his lawyers, went over to the clerk's office and asked him in the city office, did they have anything on McCluskey? And it must have been the new guy because he said, yeah, I do. Uh, you see, I got this statement right here. So they made him a copy. And he took it to the court and said, look, see here, we've been asking you for 10 years about this statement. And everybody said that there's not a statement. And here's a statement that looks like a movie script where everybody has their part saying what they're going to say in court. And so now each juror writes an affidavit saying that they would have not given McCluskey a death sentence had they known that the state fabricated this. Moore, who spent years on George's death row with McCluskey before he was granted clemency in 1990 and paroled a year later, 
says this information presented the court with obvious proof that the state had withheld evidence from the defense. The judge ruled to overturn McCleskey's conviction. And so the district court judge overturned his conviction and sentence, saying that this was wrong, and that they didn't give up the information, and that all the information that this guy testified to was false. The state of Georgia appealed it to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and the 11th Circuit ruled against McCluskey, and their ruling was so crazy that they said that Warren McCluskey should have found this statement 10 years ago, and he's locked up on death row, but he's supposed to find the statement. And how can you find the statement when it's been hid by the district attorney and the Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice says he didn't see it. The Attorney General for the state of Georgia said there wasn't any. You got letters from these two people saying that there was no statement. So it's clearly shown that it was hidden. So when it goes to the Supreme Court, they just refuse to hear it and allow McCluskey to be executed. What could motivate the state to hide evidence from the defense? According to Boger, the answer is a simple one. Because it knew that without the testimony of the informant, that they didn't have a case that McCluskey was the trigger person. In other words, the case of McCluskey v. Zant came awfully close to satisfying the seemingly impossible rules of evidence that the decision rendered in McCluskey v. Kemp required. Namely, McCluskey v. Zant showed that the state had intentionally withheld exculpatory evidence from the defense. In McCluskey's first appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, McCluskey v. Kemp, McCluskey presented evidence from the Baldus study that the courts in Georgia were racially prejudiced in who was sentenced to death that defendants charged with killing a white victim were four times more likely to be given the death sentence than defendants charged with killing a person of color. The court's 5-4 decision denying McCluskey's constitutionally guaranteed right to equal protection unless he could prove individual discrimination by individual actors in his trial sent a message throughout the U.S. justice system that addressing the issue of racial discrimination in the legal system was the responsibility of the states. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think that McCleskey shut the door on racial justice in the criminal justice system in a very pervasive and negative way. 
Ken Rose, at the time a staff attorney at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, witnessed this much when he helped enact the Racial Justice Act in North Carolina. When I first started my practices in 1981, there was study after study that showed that race was a significant factor. But when the United States Supreme Court decided McCluskey, it seemed to shrug at, the, at those studies and say, well, even assuming they're true, we don't think that the 14th Amendment or the 8th Amendment requires to do anything about it. And as a litigator looking at that decision, it seemed airtight. It seemed that there wasn't room to challenge what I viewed, and I think my colleagues that were doing death penalty work viewed as pervasive discrimination. It seemed that just in this one area that the courts blinked and said, well, we're not going to look at race discrimination anymore in these cases. Mm -hmm. Because if we did, it wouldn't just be a problem in capital cases. It would be a problem in the entire criminal justice system. And that's we, that's too far. It did seem to leave a crack. The decision in McCluskey invited legislatures to enact their own laws. So in 2009, North Carolina became the second state in the country to pass a racial justice act aimed at addressing the systemic discrimination highlighted by McCluskey. There was an effort to uh, encourage Congress to pass legislation um, its own Racial Justice Act. And Congress came close. The House of Representatives passed a version of a Racial Justice Act that would essentially allow statistics to be used to show race discrimination in capital cases um, in charging and sentencing. But the Senate did not pass that, and uh, so nothing passed Congress. Then there was one state before North Carolina, Kentucky, had an, a version of the Racial Justice Act, but it was written so broadly that you could interpret it as simply a codification of the McCluskey decision, that it, that it didn't give any teeth to the anti-discrimination provisions in the statute. Yet even the North Carolina Racial Justice Act had limited power. The North Carolina law read that if you could show race was a significant factor in the state or in the judicial division, the county, or the prosecutorial district at the time of your sentencing, um, then you could win a life sentence under the act. And that was a key provision. So the remedy under the proposal that, that we had was not that you'd get a new trial, not that you'd walk free, not that you'd get to be the neighbor of somebody in a small county in North Carolina, but that you'd get a life sentence without possibility of parole. So it was a very, in, in, in many ways, very small relief for persons who were the victims of race discrimination in their cases. But even that was too much because um, what, it, what it meant to prosecutors was that they were perpetrating this racial discrimination. The Racial Justice Act was signed into law in 2009. 
and the backlash it inspired was almost immediate. And the backlash was inflamed by political partisanship. It was used in elections. The Republicans used it as a cudgel against Democrats who had voted for the law. There were attempts to amend the the Racial Justice Act almost as soon as it passed, certainly as soon as the first set of pleadings were filed. North Carolina's Racial Justice Act was repealed in 2013. But Ken Rose sees the discrimination it exposed during the four short years it was in effect as essential to the larger battle against the death penalty. Part of what the Racial Justice Act has allowed us to do is lift up the lid that's been covering up this decay that, that is racial discrimination in capital cases, and we've taken a hard look at it. And we don't like what we see, and the legislature's shut down the lid again, but it, you, can't, you can't forget what you saw. In the case of McCluskey v. Kemp, in the case of McCluskey v. Zant, and in the cases brought to the public's attention by the Racial Justice Act in North Carolina, America's courts were confronted with painful questions about how the American legal system functioned, or, more to the point, failed to function. And in all of these cases, both regular citizens and legal insiders, including prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, and Supreme Court justices, pushed those difficult questions away. Reverend Moore was one of the last people to speak to Warren McCluskey before he was executed. Moore was no longer on death row by that time, but was still incarcerated. The year before, his death sentence had been commuted to life. This meant that hours before he was executed, Warren McCluskey placed one of his final phone calls to another prison. Moore was one of the few people who could have known exactly what he was going through. In 1974, I went over on death watch, and I was there for three days, and I came within seven hours of being executed. And then I got to stay and came back to the cell block. And he was asking me, he said, I don't understand. How, how can you do that? How can you go over there and, and come within seven hours of being executed and not fall apart? And I was explaining to him that it's not where you are physically that makes the difference. It's where you allow Christ to be in you. That is the difference. So when he went to death watch and I had been moved to another prison, because I had got off death row. On his last, on his phone call, a half an hour before he was executed, he called me. And amazing as it was, the prison allowed me to talk to him. And he told me, he said, listen, I want you to understand that I know. I know now, being he over here on death watch, that it's, it's not where I am. Physically, this is not causing me to be upset because I'm at peace with God. And he said he just wanted to call me to make sure that I understood that he understood so that I wouldn't be upset about the state executing him. Hours before his execution, Warren McCluskey's family visited him on death row. Among his visitors were his sister Betty Myers and his daughter, Carla. Earlier that day, 
She had visited the Pardons and Paroles Board, looking for one last chance to petition the state to spare her father's life. We went to the Pardons and Parole Board. Um, they said we would hear from them by 10 o'clock the next day. Well, we get there. It was way before 10 o'clock. They had already made a decision. Walking into the prison, I was the first one. And I walked in, and his lawyers were walking toward me, and I was looking at them, and I said, what's wrong? And they said they denied him. And I just dropped to the floor, just screaming and crying. And you know, they didn't even take time to, you know, think this through. They really going to kill my dad. We went. They had a holding cell. My whole family was there, except my grandmother. My grandmother, she just couldn't take it. I sat next to him, and he said, was that you? Was that you out there screaming and hollering? And I was just bawling, just boo-hooing. And he said, baby, let me tell you something. He said, no matter what happens, I will always be with you. He said, they can take my flesh, but they cannot take my soul. I will always be with you. At the time of his death in 1978, Officer Frank Schlatt, the man Warren McCluskey was convicted of killing, left behind a nine-year-old daughter, Jody. She was 24 at the time of Warren McCluskey's execution, about the same age as Carla. As Warren McCluskey's execution date approached, Jody Schlatt told reporters, all I want is justice. He believed in the justice system and it's about time the justice system takes up for my father. I want the sentence carried out. According to Carla McCluskey, no one asked her what she thought about her father's upcoming execution or what justice could come from it. I mean, I just feel like that's something that they have no right to do. They really don't. I mean, you don't have the right to play God. And those people who I feel those people that participated, I can almost imagine how well they sleep at night and how many times they participated in in that. You know, you wonder if, if they're haunted by it. I just couldn't be a part of that. I, I really couldn't. I couldn't. You know, and taking my father's life, it didn't bring the police officer back. It, it did not bring him back. So she's without a father, and so am I. She was young, and so was I. Like I said, it's, it's nothing that I would show my worst enemy. Nobody should go through that. Nobody. McCluskey v. Kemp confronted everyone involved with difficult truths. But still, there was one person who, in the end, was able to accept the most painful reality imaginable. He gave a relatively long statement at the time of his death in which he sort of apologized to the family of the officer for all the grief that they had endured because of this crime. Didn't take responsibility for the shooting, but all of that. And in the middle of that statement, there was a telephone call, and it was a stay that had been granted by the Supreme Court and then 10 minutes later, they came back and said that stay's been lifted. 
and and back we go. And he was strapped into the uh, chair, you know, giving the statement, and then, you know, they put something over his head, and electrocution occurred. He did not lose his composure in the midst of any of that, uh, and a lot of certainly people would have. You wouldn't have had the composure to make the statements and, and be dignified in that moment, and certainly would have lost it. You know, if they had a stay and then the stays lifted, it was it was it was a terrible. I, I was proud. I mean, I mean, it really was. And that sounds corny, but I, I thought this is a this is a wonderful human being. Warren McCluskey's lawyers were at his execution, but his family members his mother, his sisters Betty and Emma Jo, and his daughter, Carla, weren't at the prison that night. They weren't there because Warren had told them he didn't want to put them through the experience of witnessing his death. He's an encourager. The days that he was going to be asked, mm, just like you and I, that's what we were talking. Mm-hmm. He, I, I didn't see no whimper. Mm-hmm. I didn't see no tear. I didn't see anything he said, when he got up and they got ready to take him back, he said, didn't I tell you all to go home? Mm-hmm. Live your life to the best of your ability. He said, I'm all right. I'm all right. So when they got him, start taking him down that hall, he turned around and waved. He said, bye. After her last meeting with him on the day of his execution, Carla McCluskey didn't see her father again until she viewed his body at the funeral home. But Warren McCluskey's lawyers described his final moments to his daughter. He was tired, and he sat in the chair, and he helped them buckle, you know. And he said his last words and did a thumbs up to his lawyers and told them that they had did a great job. And he really appreciated them. And they pulled the hood over his head and... They said he did not suffer very long. You know, they did the, they pulled the switches and he was gone. I really have no faith in the justice system at all, none. And the more I see, the more I lose what little I could compromise with things, but now I can't even do that. Every law student knows the name McCleskey v. Kemp but few know the story behind the case. And Reverend Moore says that when they do learn it, they are often shocked by what they see. Talk about Warren McCluskey all the time, and then when people individually hear it, it helps them change. Talking about Warren, I asked the law students, I said, I would like for you to be the judge on this case, and I would tell them about his case without telling them who he is, because if I tell them who he is, they will think about the statistical study. But I tell them about the other issue, and each one of them say, well, this man shouldn't be on death row. 
And then I said, well, you know, this is the Warren McCluskey case. Who was executed? What do you think about that now? And they're usually upset, but being upset doesn't change Warren being executed, but it changes them. Carla McCluskey sits in her bedroom in Marietta. The rain falls outside. Every so often, a train passes by in the distance. And Carla pages through the scrapbook she made to remember her father's death and his life. We were all sitting around in the room, and he talked to each and every one of us with a straight face. He wasn't crying. He didn't show fear on his face or anything. He had made himself okay with God. I mean, he had been through this for a long time. And it showed when I saw him laying in that casket, he had a smile on his face because he was okay. We were the ones that weren't okay. Unequal Protection, Part 2, The Life and Execution of Warren McCluskey, was reported by Sarah Marshall, edited by myself, and produced by Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Music in this episode was composed by Ian Koss. Our engineers were Paul Ruest of Argo Studios in New York City and Katie McMurrin at KQED Radio in San Francisco. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who's subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming investigative reports. Subscribe to our newsletter at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation. It just takes a minute. Visit lifeofthelaw.org and follow the donate button. Visit our website and make a donation to support investigative journalism in 2017 and beyond. Your support is important. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.